Hi, welcome to another episode of the Morality of Everyday Things. I'm Anne. I'm Jake. I'm on a squeaky chair, forgive me. And <laughs> for anyone who's new in, uh, on this podcast, we discuss everyday uh, moral philosophy questions, including today's classic, is the death penalty ever justified? I feel like I'm on an undergraduate philosophy course. Oh, like a sort of school debating. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a classic, isn't it? But one we had to address. Uh, last time we discussed uh, giving cash directly to homelessness, uh, the issues around respecting someone's agency and the limits of your own moral agency, and also uh, a little bit of context on, on what makes people homeless, whether the cash is likely mm. to perpetuate a cycle. What has effective impact? Yeah. So on this one, we'll talk a little bit about the context of death penalty and, and use in practice, but I think it will be a lot of the moral discussion of punishment and, and a little bit of a, of a dissection of the moral significance of death. Exactly. Heavy uh, stuff. Just before we get in, um, quick shout out to Martha Caddick, our new production assistant. Thank you very much for helping prepare uh, yeah. all the stuff that we're going to be discussing today. And also our editor, Kane Hunter. I don't yeah. think we've really given enough shout-outs to the podcast. No, I don't think we have. Kane, so, Kane, you do a good job. Thank you, man. Cheers. Um, so, should we go straight in? Oh, one last request, actually, before we go straight into it. Please do leave a review. And the best way for the, for the podcast to grow, which means that we can put more production value and time in. Soon we're getting a, a professional studio. Long story we'll share in a future episode. But the best way that we can do that is if you leave positive reviews and share it with your family and friends if you do enjoy it. Also, we'll be opening up a sponsorship slot soon. If you run a business that you think would be interested in reaching an audience of thoughtful people, mm. feel free to contact us on LinkedIn or on social media. Right, let's get right into it. So as we always do with our everyday questions, first thing we like to start with is definitions. Uh, and often what we find is that even in the process of defining the terms of a specific question, you can then abstract to something a little bit more general and yeah. get into the nuance of what questions really asking. Exactly. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk through a little bit of you know specifically what is the death penalty, a little bit of context, and I think that yeah, the thing we really want to touch on is what does this question really point at? So obvious one. What is the death penalty? Okay, here you go. <clears throat> the death penalty is the sentencing to death of a person who is deemed no, to, shut yes, <laughs> who is deemed to have committed a crime that warrants such a punishment by the state, generally the state. This typically is for murder, but has also occurred for other crimes. So I know that in Southeast Asia, drug-related offenses can mm -hmm. sometimes carry the death penalty. And there's lots of high-profile cases of Western uh, tourists getting caught up in drug stuff and, and facing the death penalty there. As of December of 2020, 94 countries legally have death penalty laws, although some of these have not actually executed anyone for over 10 years. It's just technically within law. One of the things you flagged was by the state. Um, yeah, I suppose that's actually that's a necessary part of the definition because otherwise it's not so much a death penalty as just like killing someone, <laughs> <laughs> actual murder. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, no. I think yeah. I, I suppose in order for any punishment to be justified, it must be enacted by the sovereign of of that territory. I, I suppose in some tribal communities that doesn't mean the state. That's the effect of well. Or, or the concept of the state is shrunk down to the, the tribal leaders? Maybe, yeah. I think in this case, what it's talking about is that, yeah, it's the concept of using death for justice, but in mm. in a societal, legal context, yeah. rather than just like, is it justified to like kill someone in revenge yeah. or take so, the law into your own hands? I Different think question. The two really core concepts here are punishment and death, mm -hmm. right? Because you're punishing someone with death. Yeah. Um, so I guess... You know, irrespective of the death element, let's start with the punishment element, right? The, the first question has to be, how can any punishment be justified? H how do you decide what's proportionate? And really, 
what's the aim, right? Yeah, you, what, what you, is the purpose of punishment? Yeah, you can't you can't really assess what's it. So I'm indicating to Jake to lean a little closer because I'm quite close to the oh, mic. Actually. I see. Um, you can't really assess how well it's doing unless you unless you have a metric that you're measuring, right? I, th- I think one thing that's interesting to kind of introduce here is something that's been called the five theories of punishment. Mm. Jake, uh, what was the origin of that? I'll quickly Google it. I remember studying it at school. <laughs> Someone must have come up with it. But basically, theory goes there's five different justifications or reasons as to why you punish someone. I'll recite them for you quickly. The first one is deterrence. And that's the idea that you'd basically, by punishing someone, you set an example to put other people off committing a similar crime. The second one is removal. So that's the idea that by punishing someone, you remove them from society, thereby preventing them being able to re-offend. Classic example would be putting someone in prison, you remove them from society. Death is also actually, or possibly, (laughs) the most effective form of removal. Once you kill someone, there's no way they can repeat offend. Restitution, number three, that basically means you compensate someone the perpetrator of the crime compensates the victim normally in the form of like some kind of financial payment i presume mm-hmm. uh, the fourth is retribution this is maybe a kind of more primitive this, form of, sort this of is, this right? is or, i think this is probably the most innate and ancient form of yes like, exactly it was more about a, a, a satisfying an innate sense of justice than than it was a balancing scale or anything else like i think to summarize it in a famous understandable quote it, it's the classic eye for an eye yeah, exactly, exactly. Someone's <laughs> wronged me, and therefore yeah. they must suffer in return. It, feel, it feels like punishment is justice. Yeah, it feels like we'll come to it, and maybe there's like legitimate reasons. But it feels like kind of like the toddler's approach to um, <laughs> to punishment, right? Like you punch me, I get to punch you. <laughs> and the fifth one, in in kind of I guess contrast with retribution, uh, this is the sort of more modern, more sort of evolved theory of punishment is rehabilitation. So this is mm. the idea that actually punishment offers a way to guide and improve and 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 prevent future crime by actually altering a criminal's underlying behavior or, yeah. or improving their attitudes yeah, yeah. or kind of educating them we'll come to this in a minute but um i think the interesting thing about this is that um in fact no we won't come to it in a minute we will we'll just go straight into it so i think the interesting thing is when you look at these kind of five different options so to, to clarify that was retribution eye for an eye deterrence did you mention deterrence, deterrence um so to, to stop people doing it again rehabilitation to rehabilitate the person who did wrong to, to make sure that they don't do that again removal. so, so it, it's quite so deterrence and rehabilitation are similar but deterrence is like stop other people rehabilitation is stop repeat offending mm-hmm. removal again I, I suppose removal is a alternative to rehabilitation no you, no removal is more like just taking someone out of society yeah yeah, yeah. but i mean like if you're thinking about stopping an individual from reoffending, mm-hmm. they can be substitutes which mm-hmm. is why sometimes for example if you don't think someone can be rehabilitated, you remove them permanently by putting mm-hmm. them on a life sentence and restitution. So that's just about compensation. That's, so I think the interesting thing is when we think about justifying things, you know, we, we, we come, I think in this context particularly, we, we come to the classic sort of, um, oh, sorry, there's a very loud motorbike. God, don't you hate people with loud motorbikes? Hmm. It's, it's such a selfish thing to do. That's one that we should do next week, actually, or something. Like, <laughs> just having a loud motor vehicle a sign that you are sexually insecure. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> Not much nuance to that. Yeah, but no, no. So when you think about the ju- like systems of justifying these sort of things, we kind of come back to a familiar school. You, you, you may have noticed yourself that these all had uh, or, or fell into two camps, and that was outcomes based versus some sort of rules based, right? And, and I mean, like the description of retribution as eye for an eye is the clearest sort of 
rules, but it's literally a rule. Whereas all of the other ones, you can actually seemingly assess it from either how much the person reoffends or whether it stops other people committing crime. Exactly. Right? I think restitution kind of sits somewhere in the middle. It applies to a, there's a sense of kind of fairness, uh, irrespective of whether it affects outcomes, right? But I can also see how, you know, if you're taking a utilitarian perspective, restitution can be seen as kind of balancing the scales mm. of like your, your, some, someone who says something bad, so you should do something good to kind of balance it. It's because I suppose in some respects, fines have that deterrent effect to them. Don't they? Yes. Yeah. So I think one thing that's interesting, and we kind of talked about this when we mentioned retribution, saying it was like the most primitive, prim- not necessarily in a judgy way. Ancient. Maybe. Ancient, yes. Primal uh, form of punishment is to think about how punishment has evolved over time, right? And mm-hmm. I, I think an interesting person in that regard or who's looked at this a lot is um, Michel Foucault and his kind of analysis of prisons over time. And, and, and uh, I think it was Discipline and Punish is the name of his book in that regard. I think one thing that's interesting there is just to think about when we think about society 500, 1,000 years ago, right? And we thought about punishment. We think about extreme physical violence, right? We think about mm. public tortures, public executions, right? I suppose that the argument there could be something along the lines of, A, this, this fulfills a very primal retributive form of punishment, right? If you do something bad, something bad should happen to you. But it also, I suppose, appeals to some form of deterrence, particularly. You know, it's not just the knowledge that you will be punished, but, you know, to, to, to witness such a gruesome punishment um, mm. seems like a, a, a very effective way to stop people from um, committing crimes, right? I mean, it's certainly funny that it sort of evolved into a sense of public spectacle, didn't it? Mm. I mean, it actually it almost became a form of organized entertainment, or at least that sort of classic image of like medieval Britain is that people would go to public hangings as like something fun to do, a little family outing. There was, I mean, <laughs> I, there was not much going on. They'd not discovered football yet. <laughs> so. Yeah, you know, they they couldn't torture themselves watching Arsenal lose every week. I am ostensibly an Arsenal fan, and I'm not really big on football. Someone told me they were doing bad this season. I was like, oh no. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I think I think it's interesting how we kind of have started from that point. I don't think that necessarily you know rules based philosophers would endorse torture, but I, it does feel like we've kind of moved from this point of rules based. And a correlation with punishing the body, which is about, I suppose, retribution and deterrence, to, I suppose, now we would say a much more, I suppose, consequentialist and outcome-based approach to punishment, right? Um, and I, I mean, part of it, part of it is, you know, perhaps in good faith. Part of it is perhaps understanding, like, look, all that matters is that we improve outcomes. It's, it's perhaps immature to focus on punishing people and making people feel bad for what they did. Uh, maybe an understanding that, like, a lot of crime is a a outcome of people in difficult circumstances as opposed to bad people. You know, you could also see, I think Foucault kind of makes the point that the movement of punishment as a public spectacle to kind of institutionalized and hidden, you know, systems and, and, and physical places detaches people from it and, and also can kind of create less accountability, right? Because when you, when you are committing, you know, public hangings, it's a clear expression of power of, of the state. Of, in that case, that would be a king, right? And when people didn't agree with, the, with who was being hung and, or, or thought the torture was unfair, it was clear who to blame for that. But when we hide these behind prison walls, it's easy to, or significantly easier, to forget about these people unless you're like their direct loved one. Or even then, I suppose it's easier when you don't have to see, see them being tortured in public. It's easier to distance yourself and, and dissociate uh, you know, the, the rightness or wrongness of that punishment with the state. Sorry, small digression. So we've talked about how it's evolved from from a kind of a retributive rules based system to more outcome based. I, I think we can we can roughly like line up that transfer 
or that changed with the views of you know the classic rules-based philosopher Kant and the classic outcomes-based philosopher Bentham. So the, the originator of, did you say Kant is the originator of deontology? Um, I mean, he's the guy you most closely associate with, yep. it, isn't it? Uh, and Bentham was the was the kind of. Uh, I'm sure that there was some conception of consequentialism for him, but certainly the originator of utilitarianism, which then John Stuart Mill kind of expanded upon. So it's interesting looking into these two guys. Kant is basically, I mean, his his theory of punishment very much centers around the idea of retributive justice, and I. I found this interesting because I guess I've kind of always seen Kant in terms of like, he talks about the categorical imperative. You sort of respecting people, respecting as, people ends. as ends rather than means yeah. seems to be a little bit at odds with this idea of an eye for an eye, right? Yeah, but killing then, someone to, to, to meet some wider maxim. Yeah, I mean, Kant, bear in mind, is the guy who's like, you couldn't lie to an ex-murderer. <laughs> but then mm. in the same sort of set of theories, he justifies the idea that if people are sort of guilty, they should be punished with pain or death or whatever. And this is kind of some way of atoning for guilt. He has this very sort of rules-based approach that does seem to be if you've mm. broken the rules, then you know, then yeah. then then you kind of almost seem to like well, sacrifice, I, not sacrifice, yes, do you know what I mean? I can like, I, I can see surrender how, your rights. Yep. Yeah. I can see how if you're the proponent of humans are our ends in themselves and, and moral agency is the thing that makes you morally significant, I could see how that has the double-edged sword effect of meaning that. On the one hand, like humans are ends in themselves and that's paramount. And on the other hand, if your agency is what makes you so significant and important, then when you mess up, <laughs> yeah. you really got to pay because you are you are responsible. You've kind of forfeited the right to your own agency at that point yeah. in his view. I think the interesting thing is the way that he involves the concept of community or preservation of community into, into his understanding of this. Because if you think about his categorical imperative, it's all about basically, can we turn this into a generalizable rule whilst mm-hmm. it's still making sense? And in, in this context, he, is, he explicitly states, the community must execute a murderer for the sake of justice. Otherwise, the community shares in the murderer's guilt. So it's interesting that for something that seems so individualistic, this kind of concept of humans as ends in themselves, generally conceptions of like, you know, for the greater good, for the good of the community is more of an argument that you see along a utilitarian line. Right? Mm. Uh, the greater good is literally the summation of various different parts. It's yeah. very much a utilitarian phrase. Yeah. I mean, greater good is certainly the sort of thing, or, or for the good of you know my family or whatever, is the sort of thing that you would use to, to lie to an axe murderer. So um, does, does Kant basically, in this way, does he sort of elevate the community to be like a higher collection of agency? As it, is the community basically like some sort of super agent? And that's super agent. <laughs> uh, I, I, I honestly couldn't tell you. Let's look at Bentham quickly as well. So Bentham yeah. is the guy who, in contrast with Kant, utilitarian in his approach he actually he was one of the first guys to argue against the death penalty uh, or, or rather argue for it to be abolished mm. i think he started out from the position of saying like in extreme cases it was justified mm-hmm. and then Which, eventually convinced himself yeah, yeah eventually convinced himself it should be abolished entirely i think i'm gonna go out on a limb by the way i think a lot of people intuitively actually agree with that former opinion right like i don't support the death penalty but then sometimes you see you we'll come to this later we'll, we'll talk about it in detail later but sometimes you like you know come across these cases of like serial killers who have done horrible things and you know for whatever reason could be mental instability you don't really see uh, a path to rehabilitation mm. and there's an innate feeling like oh god like allowing that per- just just the anxiety it causes people knowing that that person is alive you know the, the chance that i don't know that there's a riot at the prison and they break out right all of that oh sorry i just wanted to uh, I, come back to that. i thought, it, I, thought it was, yeah. I thought it was curious that i think a lot of people on some innate level mm-hmm. on some innate level feel that way and on a rational level probably think that it should just not exist at all but yeah i think Interesting to, in this regard. So, I mean, if you think about utilitarianism, right, as we were talking in the context of the five aims of punishment, 
it's all outcomes based, right? But importantly, utilitarianism values negative impact on the prisoners too, right? Mm -hmm. So, so rehabilitation is actually, you know, naturally a much more feasible path because rehabilitation means that there won't be more negative outcomes in the future and that you're not harming the person, right? And, and mm. we'll, one concept that we will come to in a bit is, is the significance of death uh, and how you measure that. I mean, by some measures, it's kind of the ultimate cost, the ultimate like negative in, in utilitarian balance. You know, you could kind of see some argument where like, it's uh, supposing that you kill someone in a humane way as opposed to via torture, it's more like an instant sleep Mm. So it's not particularly painful. It's actually the it's the absence of positive or negative. Mm -hmm. You know, I think most people would take it to be a, a very negative thing to die. And in that context, it's hard to square with utilitarian principles, right? Again, this kind of relates to what we're saying with Foucault, but I think Bentham also was very famous. And, and in this context of rehabilitation, was very famous for this concept prison called a panopticon. Right? Yes. Um, so the panopticon, if I remember correctly, was basically this sort of circular prison with a watchtower in the middle. Was the watchtower always manned? What's the so, significance of that? Yeah, I mean, it, I think strictly it was like a a, a, a curved mirror in mm -hmm. the middle um, with a guard at the bottom, but yeah, you, watchtower works the same. And the point is basically every prisoner can't tell when they're being watched, mm -hmm. right? But could be watched at any time. Yeah, And so they, the natural incentive is that you have to behave all the time because you never know when you're being watched. Yeah. Right? yeah. And I think that, that I, he meant it quite literally. And it was an idea of, of a kind of structure to help people reform. But I think the interesting thing is, one, people have kind of understood this in a metaphorical sense as well. This kind of conception that you're always being watched and... and, and Has big brother-esque vibes. Yes, <laughs> exactly. People have kind of taken what he intended to be positive into a very negative thing. And this is, again, something we'll explore in a minute, just the kind of the idea of punishing someone's mind or, or, or shaping someone's mm. personhood as a punishment versus their, versus um, just simply like restricting their movement or, or even killing them. So I think one other thing to consider in the context of utilitarianism, one of the five that we mentioned before, deterrence, right? A lot of utilitarian argument ultimately has to come down to evidence, mm -hmm. right? And we had a quick check just to, and, and also as part of the research for the, for the episode, we looked into this. One major point that people argue in favor of death penalties is that intuitively it's a deterrent. Yeah, right? it should be the ultimate deterrent. Yeah. Really. I so. mean, it, the concept that you will be killed should, should deter people. But as a matter of fact, there's actually not very much evidence to support that being the case. Uh, the main thing you can do is compare different states in the US, first of all, you know, over long periods of time, but secondly, specifically, when they add or remove death penalties and, and normalize to other states that are similar. It makes for the perfect counterfactual, doesn't it? Yeah, or, or as economists would call it, kind of natural experiment. Mm -hmm. um, and there isn't really evidence to suggest that the death penalty meaningfully affects outcomes versus, you know, imprisonment and, and, and lifetime uh, sentences and stuff. So the implication is that crime rates, at least for the crimes punishable by death, when death is removed, don't really, like they don't substantially increase. Yeah, certain. Yeah. And, you know, from a context of, of utilitarianism, where you're trying to maximize outcomes in the mid to long term, mm. that's hugely significant, right? So you're, you're inflicting, we might assume, we'll come to the conception of death, but we might assume a huge negative cost to, to utility hmm. for actually no benefit in terms of deterrence and no, uh, and no positive to the person who's been uh, harmed. You have perhaps understand, you know, depending on your understanding of the value of retribution, given a positive to the, to the victims associated to the person who was murdered, uh, assuming that that's why you, uh, they are on death row. But 
Yeah. It, the fact that deterrence doesn't work makes it hard for that mass to stack up in reality. Yeah. I think I think what's very interesting about the death penalty, and I think the reason why it's an emotive topic is that it seems a little bit at odds with our evolvingly like humane view of other people, of society, and of punishment mm-hmm. in general. And I think the death penalty is unquestionably effective in terms of removal because mm-hmm. you are basically most effectively removing that person from ever reoffending again. Mm-hmm. Certainly has a strongly retributive element to it. However, it completely removes any prospect of rehabilitation and reform yep. for the prisoner in question. And yes. as we were saying, like it's actually the evidence for whether it's an effective deterrent is surprisingly questionable because there's something intuitive about the fact that like, wow, you're going to get killed for doing this. You're probably going to think twice about doing it. But then maybe that's misunderstanding the nature of why people commit crimes. Yeah, that's place. Well, also, you have to remember the counterfactual isn't no punishment. The counterfactual is lifetime imprisonment. Yeah, probably. Exactly. Which, you know, maybe is a sufficiently strong determinant. We've talked a bit about what justifies punishment and we, we touched on death and we said that we'll explore it a bit, but, you know, maybe you could consider it a nothing, a neutral. Maybe you could consider it the ultimate negative in terms of utility. Mm-hmm. I think there's a few there's a few special features of death as a punishment that are worth thinking about. And I mean, this one's, this one's practical, right? Death is permanent, right? So you, you mentioned there's no chance for rehabilitation. That's not just saying there's no, there's no positive uh, to, the, to the person who's being punished, right? It's also saying that if you were wrong in punishing that person, there is no way of rectifying that, right? Yeah. And this is a hugely salient issue. At least this is actually one of the big counter arguments against the death penalty at all is like, the cost of making a mistake is irreparable. <laughs> like you kill someone, you can't bring them back. You imprison someone, sure, they can't get those years of their life back, but yeah. at least they can be released, their name can be cleared. Yeah. I think another thing is that this starts to intersect with conceptions of, of human rights, right? Mm. Uh, we've discussed in other episodes, you know, okay, is, is the concept of human dignity, human rights actually a useful concept? It can be hard to kind of argue for and against that. There's, you know, a lot of back and forth, but ultimately I think the concept of taking away someone's life holds a special place in most people's minds as a, you know, something that, that isn't really comparable as Apple Store. And I think the most, you know, we're talking about the most primitive forms being retributive. <laughs> it's ironic, you know, the, the term eye for an eye comes from the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, the Bible being also culturally one of the, or, or sorry, religion more widely, most religions being one of the places that culturally around the world enshrines the conception that human life is uh, sacrosanct, sacred. Ironic, because religion is also one of the primary motivators of killing other people. Um, (laughs) My context, personally, is the Bible. I I say that. I wasn't wasn't brought up religious, but it's the one I'm most familiar with. Mm. Um, But yeah, I mean, you know, people in the Bible commit plenty of killings condemned by God. God himself kills a lot of people. Leviticus literally lists tons of reasons as to why people could be justified in being put to death, like the sort of crimes they could commit. Mm in order to uh, yeah. a death sentence. So I do, I, I find the I find the kind of religious justification for the sanctity of human life quite ironic. Yeah, um, it's interesting. I mean, because religion, or at least religious texts, certainly do match with the fact that they are, like they're, they're ancient systems of rules or mm. of guides. And, and, and that marries exactly with the evolution of sort of sense of punishment that we've seen when we were talking about it earlier, is that mm. our conceptions of punishment have evolved to become possibly more humane. But yeah. the Bible particularly and, and similar religious texts come from a prior time where, yeah. where those attitudes were different. But it's yeah. interesting when they don't necessarily, you know, it's it's not like they update the Bible. <laughs> yeah. Version um, two. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to get into a huge uh, like discussion of what's the value of human life because that should be that that's a that merits an episode all its own. Um I think the main thing that we want to highlight with death is just that one, it, it like taking human life compared to most other punishments, 
is a thorny is a thorny question, a thorny area. Like different people value that in different ways. To the extent that some people don't even think that like helping people commit suicide who want to commit suicide is is acceptable, mm. right? But specific to punishment, I think the thing that's really important is that yeah, once once you've killed someone, it's irreversible. You can always let someone out of prison, but you can't bring them back to life. That said, putting someone in prison for from twenty to fifty, you can let them out of prison, and maybe you can do some things you know, by way of restitution, but you can never give, you know, there's, there's a permanence there as well, right? You can never yeah. give them their youth back. And you probably can't completely alter their sort of mental perspective. Like, yeah, you, know, you, they, you they, change they that person. profoundly yeah. changed. But uh, <laughs> I suppose at least you can, if you think in purely utility, assuming that you can have some skill where things are comparable, mm. you can give them a bunch of positives. When you're dead, it's done. Uh, and that's hugely significant in the context of an imperfect legal system. Let's, uh, let's talk about one other aspect related to death, which is, how well uh, a nice thought experiment to kind of frame this is is it crueler to imprison someone for life i.e there's no hope that they'll ever get out or actually just sort of kill them humanely so if someone's mm. going to be locked up possibly in like solitary confinement depending on the nature of their crime yeah and that is an indefinite period of time yeah for the rest of their life yeah and i mean also worse. also i mean based i i haven't personally been to prison uh, <laughs> i haven't even visited prisons but i mean in the context of of you know what you kind of pick up in um tv tv <laughs> yeah, yeah like it's aside from purely the imprisonment you know we're, we're talking about perhaps an environment where you know you can be beaten up like male rape is yeah. not non-existent um so there's lots of other horrible things about being in prison aside from the pure fact that you're being removed from society yeah so it's a hostile yeah. environment in fact I, you know i should have looked this up before but i i wonder what suicide rates are within prisons here you go. So four in the times. U.S., suicide rate among prisoners is four times as high as the general population. A little bit of selection bias. The, the treatment isn't just the experience of being in prison, because you know if you're in prison, you're also disproportionately likely to have a difficult background, perhaps with mental health issues, right? Yeah, makes but still, point, doesn't it? You could have, you could be more prone to suicidal tendencies. Yeah, by virtue of being in prison. Yeah, yeah. Um, still, four still, times. Is four times. Uh, it's it's so hard, and I think it comes down to individuals. I think one thing that I want to highlight in, in, in that question. This was a thought experiment we were discussing. What if someone is so unhappy in prison that they would want to opt for death row? I don't know if that's ever happened, but you know, feasibly, what if that was the case? And also, a lot of people approach questions of death row with a lot of emotional baggage, right? Hmm. One of the key things being, if you kill someone, you don't have to maintain them. The idea that someone who's done something horrible has to be maintained at large cost in prison for the rest of their a, life. A taxpayer cost. Right? A taxpayer cost. I think that really grates people. Yeah. That's, that's one of the reasonings people provide. It's kind of an argument of fairness. It's not fair that someone has already harmed society and now they're going to harm society continually every year. Yeah. But what if a prisoner said that they would be willing to go move to death row in exchange for a payment that was less than the cost of maintaining them until their death? <laughs> the payment is an extra element, that, isn't it? Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll start with the first one. What if someone actually was so unhappy with their life sentence they would rather go to death? Well, I guess you don't have to go to death row. You can just commit suicide. Yeah, that's probably the way that people as, tend to do it. Easier or hard as that is. Maybe, maybe someone would prefer. Yeah. But then the other one is to resolve that issue of um, the, the discomfort of paying to support someone. Would people be willing to to take a payment to move over? And how would that work in practice? Because obviously, who would you go to? Just family dead, Just go to your your estate. Yeah. Does everyone have estates, or is that just something? That- <laughs> is that just rich people? I mean, I am an estate. No, I don't. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so, so, so wait, wait, what do you think? Someone should be allowed to do that if they asked you? Personally, yes. And I do think- you generally uh, um, agree with assisted suicide? Yeah, that's that, that's probably the reason. Is I, I, I think, think that basis. 
I, I, I think we have a we have a slightly well, this is definitely one for another episode, but it's when we were talking about the sanctity of human life, I do I do think we have this kind of societal sort of phobia around death more generally, and we, we don't really like talking about it, and therefore we don't really like addressing the concept of suicide. Possibly it just sits too much at odds with the kind of mm. inbuilt drive for life that yeah, yeah. you're supposed to feel. Interesting. And, and, and therefore, I think if you... I, I don't know. I think, I think the thought experiment that really sort of clashes with my sense that like the death penalty is inhumane is the fact that actually is it possibly more inhumane to keep someone in confinement forever it's certainly i mean this is the sort of emotional reason but it's like you said it's certainly economically inefficient Mm -hmm. it actually goes against any sense of like sort of retribution that you might feel about like oh well someone's locked up forever but like yeah that's that doesn't feel particularly just when you're then paying to support them you know yeah yeah i mean like one other thing on the context of retribution and rehabilitation, right? I think there's, there's been a lot of discussion over the years. If you just Google like Norwegian prisons, uh, there's lots of articles where they go around and it's like, oh, it's like a hotel and they passes <laughs> and stuff. And, and there's kind of this understanding that like, you know, I said earlier that, that retributive justice is very innate and primal, but perhaps it, we've kind of moved away from that over time, hence the existence of Nordic prisons. It does, it, it, it does kind of feel grating to think that, you know, what if prisons in the interest of better outcomes, which is totally legitimate, actually kind of start to totally diminish the concept of punishing prisoners mm. and entirely see them as people who are perhaps victims of circumstance themselves. Um, I mean, that have strayed from the flock. Yeah, it's it's easy to kind of say like, yeah, that makes sense, you know, as a, you know, say you're an economist analyzing it, but then when someone murders your sibling, suddenly that's gonna, <laughs> feel, that's gonna feel pretty unfair. Like you, you feel like suffering on their part is, a, is, you know, perhaps you think, look, eye for an eye is, is ridiculous and, and there's some context in which I should take this to understand it and, and outcomes do matter. But there is, I feel like some innate understanding of like <laughs> of the necessity for them to suffer for it to feel mm. fair, right? Well, I think a key thing with the phrase eye for an eye is that concept of proportionality, right? Yeah. So I think this is, I mean, this is where you look back at sort of um, like older societies and you think, wow, people used to steal a loaf of bread and then get hung for it. I mean, I don't know if that happens outside the context of Les Miserables, but like, no, no, I'm yeah. sure it did. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in, I think in Arabian societies, it was like if you steal something, your hand gets cut off, right? Yeah, and and it does feel to be at least uh, like today, looking looking back at that, it feels like there's a lacking sense of proportionality. Proportionality actually, I think, seems to be really really important. If someone steals something, you know, a fine, compensation. I think mm. it, it, most people's sort of perception of that nowadays mm. that fits, that feels proportional. And that's why I think the death penalty is interesting because it's obviously over time been reduced to a smaller set of crimes mm. that do seem to mm. sit proportionally with the, the, what's been committed. So right. murder, serial killers, like, yeah. which probably, probably make mo- up multiple homicides. Yeah, they, they, they probably, uh, this is one of those things where actually the question is interesting, but the, the sort of statistics are uh, relatively small, yeah. right? Yeah, the statistical relevance of like serial killers is, I mean, I suspect there are a negligible amount of prisoners in, in the US or, or, or elsewhere. I mean, um, it must be a handful of people who actually are on death row. Right? Yeah. Could have probably looked at that up. I think <laughs> we actually have some stats on death row here. Oh, actually, this was a really interesting thing about Trump. In the final days of Trump being in Paris president, he rushed through five death row inmates to be executed. I mean, yeah, I guess it's, uh, that's fairly shocking because since 2003, no federal executions had taken place. Yeah. Um, state, state, state has, but yeah, no, no federal ones. But yeah. a total of 10 inmates were executed by the federal government in 2020, which was a record. Yeah. Since, it's like the 19th century. It's, yeah the highest since the 19th century, means the 1800s. Jesus. Yeah. 
there was also an irony to the fact that some of those federal executions might have been super spreader events. Mm. <laughs> and that was particular to last Another factor pandemic. to consider in the utilitarian argument. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like, like I said, I, and this is a counterpoint to Bentham's thing, but like the relative costs of killing someone versus maintaining them. But mm. then, yeah, are there risks around around running those events? Uh, maybe, yeah, maybe that's maybe that's normally irrelevant, but yeah. in the context of COVID, was relevant. Um, yeah. <laughs> And those are like particular examples of uh, federal executions. I think in a lot of cases, if not all, it was to do with people who had like serious sort of mental health issues. Yeah. Which I think comes back to that same question again of cruelty. Like, is it actually crueler to sort of maintain these people and not give them some kind of out versus just being like, do you know what? You think they're being merciful by putting them on death row? (laughs) Well, not necessarily on death row. And I think that's another element of death row that's worth considering is just that that must be particularly stressful to sit there for however many years it goes on for. Um, waiting waiting just waiting yeah, like that must be actually like the that. most the most that must be probably one of the few things that's worse mm. so so you, i want to come back to mention this concept of proportionality mm. could it be that as we kind of evolve our sense of punishment to include more factors such so we started out with retribution restitution probably the natural follow-on and then we kind of have rehabilitation deterrence and um what was removal. The removal removal kind of being closely tied with death penalties the ultimate removal uh, you being removed from the, the plane of the living. Do you think that then that you could kind of widen our concept of proportionality as we kind of start to consider more elements of punishment? Mm-hmm. So when it's just retributive, it's, you know, eye for an eye, death for a death. And then at some point it kind of becomes like, okay, as long as you're not a serial killer or doing something that will harm lots of people. So in the, in the view of Southeast Asian countries, um, drug trafficking, mm-hmm. then actually, you know, when we factor in, you know, there should be some retribution, you should, you should suffer. But actually, you know, we do also need to think about these other factors, and they can all add up to be proportional. But retribution alone doesn't mean whatever you did, you get something equally bad. My suspicion is that retribution and prevention probably always kind of coexisted as a theory. But I think our nature of our like understanding of how we deliver prevention has evolved. Because I think in the past, if you're killing someone, that's just removal, that's prevention in the bluntest sense. Yeah. But as we've gone on, we've been like, actually, can we achieve prevention through one, putting other people off, but two, improving this person? And, yeah. and it, yeah. it, it seems like that ties, that ties less to that sense of proportionality, though, doesn't it? That's maybe just like, yeah. Well, I think one thing that highlights the idea that like maybe the proportion becomes smaller, but retribution is still important. Mm. I, I've got an idea for you. Go on. Let's say that Prince Andrew <laughs> um, you know, assaulted someone in your family. Right. And because he's a major VIP, et cetera, you don't have avenues to uh, legally pursue him, but they offer you restitution. They, they basically pay you a bunch of money. It's like without admitting guilt, pay you a bunch of money and say like, look, like this needs to, like this goes away. Right. Just kind of hush up the crime. Yeah. Do you feel like that could ever, any amount could ever sufficiently provide justice? Yeah. It's an interesting question, isn't it? Because I'm sure in that sort of breaking bad sense of like mainly one thing in life that's not negotiable. Yeah. You could find a price that would satisfy almost anyone in connection with almost any crime. Make you happy, but maybe not feel but like does, justice. Does that, yeah, does that feel like justice? Especially if, I mean, you gave the example of Prince Andrew, I presume the point there is just he's someone who is and incredibly... A quote-unquote untouchable. Yeah. And, 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 and I, I mean, like Donald, Donald Trump has, has been accused of sexual mm. assault many times and has paid out in lawsuits yeah. without admitting guilt. But uh, that sense of retribution just has happened there. That sense of retribution is lacking when it's someone who is extremely well endowed with wealth and resources. I don't think Donald Trump is particularly well endowed. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen his hands, they're really small. Uh, um, but yeah, it's interesting that in that context, you'd never feel like justice was served, right? And so in that sense, 
I guess the point is, you know, for death penalty, a death penalty inmates, you need to find a way for them. There, there needs to be some sense of them suffering for it mm. to feel like justice. Yeah. Maybe that's just an immature, innate human drive that we need to kind of yeah. just rationalize past. Yeah. Do you think that just comes from that sort of tribal human psychology? I can't or, tell you, or, mate. Or, or do you think there's something more? more important to it one question to kind of consider if you buy into the idea despite the fact there's not much evidence that it's a deterrent and that people need to suffer in order for it to feel like justice has has happened why why do we no longer punish people's bodies and i think generally well i think every every modern society has has outlawed torture yeah Uh, i say that punishment right i say that though um you know still happened guantanamo bay i was going to say guantanamo yeah, yeah exactly and I, I mean, it's funny because that was obviously especially reserved for particular cases of national yeah. security, quote unquote. Prisons but, run by um, U.S. military in Iraq, mm-hmm. although although there were investigations into that because they considered it inappropriate. There's kind of gaps where it still happens. The fundamental question is why 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 is torture no longer acceptable? Mm. If, which, uh, if death is, if death is, which is funny. The, the interesting contrast with torture is there's that Epicurean thesis, like we're saying, where death is neither good nor bad; it's nothing. Yeah, because actually. Death is the end of your suffering. You can't yeah. suffer past the point of death. So you could kind of see a sense in which torture is actually worse. Yeah. I mean, certainly, it, again, coming back to that kind of utilitarian concept, it's funny because I feel like if my choices were, depends on the torture, but if my choices were torture or death, I feel like I would choose torture. Well, because there's some hope of survival. Survival, yeah. Um, but yeah, I could see a kind of conception of the negative of torture versus the kind of nothing of death that kind of sees that that's actually worse. Depends on the nature of torture, doesn't it? I could totally imagine, like, I don't know, if you were to be sort of, like, tortured to the extent that, like, let's say your skin was completely flayed. Oh, my God. Right? Like, actually, are there, there there probably are examples where it's actually, it is just kinder or or less suffering involved in just dying. Jesus. Well, what a time to wrap up. What a cheerful way to... to Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, f- I need to go. <laughs> no, I, I, not I need to go. I, I, I need to move on from that thought. Yeah. Um, okay. So wait, let, let, let's take a second. What do you think overall? Do you, do you, do you think that there's a place for the death penalty? I think two things. I think one that we'll probably come back to in a future episode on assisted suicide more generally is I think there's definitely a potential sort of clause in there where. Yeah, but that's, it's, it's actually quite separate. It's, it's potentially separate, but I think something around the lines of actually like offering death as an alternative to life imprisonment kind of makes sense. And then in the more direct sense where the state like decides and administers the death penalty without there being any sort of questions around consent or anything like that. Which is the actual question. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's so tricky. I, I, have, I have a sort of more general sense still that remain with me before we answer this question, which is that death is just like sort of too inhumane. Like the systems of punishment that we use are basically a bit of a mirror to society and they reflect back at us the things that we value. And you like to think that we've evolved to a point of sort of like humanity that killing people uh, in, in any sense of justice is wrong. I think the set of crimes for which the death penalty makes sense and is proportional is extremely small. Mm-hmm. That being said, I think potentially that set does actually exist. You think about the case of like, and, I, and this is why I think it's it's maybe not as salient a question as it could be, because I think like in the case of like extreme psychotic serial killers, it probably is just better for society and safer and, and possibly even just like, yeah, more efficient, economically speaking, to maintain the penalty for that. But I just, I think it's... Can, you, it's can you be culpable if you have a diagnosable... Uh, I was going to say if you have a diagnosable mental disorder, 
but I suppose the thing with mental disorders is that it's just descriptions of collections of behaviors. It's not, it's right. not, it's, it might not remove your agency. Mm. Mm. Yeah. What about you? What do you reckon? Like I said earlier, I feel like my innate answer is that like my rational answer is that it shouldn't exist. Yeah. But the innate answer is oh, it, then you see like pe- some specific people doing horrific things and it just makes you feel like oof, maybe in this like, specific case. Yeah. It, it's not even kind of a, a re- retributive thing. Why do I struggle with that word? It's not even a retributive <laughs> thing. For me, it's, it's, you know, imagine you were, I don't know, instrumental in the capture of this person. Mm. Imagine you, in many serial killers, it's the person who just got away, right? Imagine the anxiety that person feels knowing that person is alive. Yeah. Knowing that there is a, a non-zero, a very, very small, but a non-zero chance that they could escape prison in a riot or something mm. and that they may target them specifically. Mm. That's my primary concern. And, and, you know, it's also, you know, we've discussed that deterrence doesn't matter, but we're talking really about people where rehabilitation is not an option in terms of restitution. I feel like as well, this, this is kind of reserved for the set of crimes where like restitution is the last thing on your mind, right? Mm. Like if a family member is murdered, like the last thing, yeah, the, the last, yeah, the last thing you're thinking is like, who can I sue for this, right? <laughs> it's, it's when, it's when, like, you know, if I'm at a, I don't know, a business and some form of negligence causes me to have an injury, that's when I'm like, I need restitution for this. When someone dies because there's a crazy person in society, you know, I'm not like it's the government's fault that a crazy person is in society. Restitution is is kind of irrelevant here, I suppose, unless, well, actually, to be fair, say they escape during a prison riot and then come and kill a family member. Maybe I'd feel like restitution is appropriate there. (laughs) And the death penalty would have been a circumstance that would have avoided that outcome. Yeah. So yeah, sorry, that's a really long way of saying, rationally, I disagree with it. But God, you know, there are always going to be cases that really tempt you. Yeah. Um, And actually, one other thing is just on that, you can be wrong point, right? Like, there there are examples of cases where we were so, so sure it was obvious, and we ended up being wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, the FBI, we were saying up here, so in 2015, FBI admitted that almost all examiners in a forensic unit gave flawed testimony in almost all trials in which they gave evidence for hair comparison. Of these cases, 32 included defendants sentenced to death. 14 had already been executed. That specific evidence, you know, doesn't actually mean that may not have been instrumental. It could have added weight. I mean, particularly when it comes to serial killers, mentally disturbed people, the veracity of even admissions is suddenly thrown into question. Like someone saying they did something isn't even necessarily reliable, uh, isn't reliable indicated that they did it. I can't believe we've got through this whole episode and not mentioned 12 Angry Men, actually. Have you seen it? I haven't actually. It's one of my my greatest sins. Yeah, it's one of my favorite films. It's brilliant. And uh, basically, they really... Sounds like a porno. (laughs) (laughs) They really uh, focus in on that sort of question of salience because they've got a young young man who's going to be put to death yeah, uh, I think for I think for murder. I can't remember exactly what his crime was. And the one juror who has sort of reasonable doubt is basically like, unless we're totally certain, we yeah. have to. That's yeah. That's that understanding that like it's not whether you're quite sure. There has to be no reasonable doubt that they did it. Yeah. Um, I think in absence of that, in absence of that, you, you really struggle because the death penalty is yeah. just so permanent, as we discussed. Granted, I suppose some serial killers may have videos of them doing what they're doing, etc. Like you know, there may not be yeah. much reasonable doubt. Right, okay. uh, which was a long way of saying, I think it's probably never justified, but ooh, don't tempt me. <laughs> <laughs> I think the set of crimes which is justified and the level of stringency you'd need to sort of meet with evidence is, is it's a tiny proportion of things. Um, so you, but you don't think, it, you think it can sometimes be justified? Yes, I think so. Interesting. Interesting. What's an example of one where it would be justified? 
I mean, some like horrific sort of serial killer example where mm-hmm. you just don't think there's any hope for reform. And you have no doubt that, and they, you have did no doubt that they did it. But I think Perhaps that's a video evidence of them doing yeah, everything. There's a lot of conditions to meet there. But, mm-hmm. but, but for certain, like, cool. Okay. Good way to conclude. Before we wrap up, some quick housekeeping reminders. One, please remember to leave a review if you like the show. Uh, and, and also, or even if you don't, <laughs> even if you oh, don't, I actually, no, wait, if you didn't like the show, don't leave a review. <laughs> I was going to say. Preferably uh, a nice review, but give us give us feedback anyway. We'd love to hear from you guys. We have a newsletter. It's on Substack. It's linked in the show notes. Please subscribe. You'll hear all about our latest episodes. Get a little bit more sort of detail into into the stuff that we've discussed, kind of show notes there. And, uh, and some good memes as well. Oh, there's going to be a good one for this. We have uh, we have a Patreon account. So if you like the show and want to support it, you're very welcome to set up a donation there. And of course, yeah, I mean, all the usual social media crap. Follow us on there. Uh, you'll, you'll hear from us there as well. We don't have a specific question lined up next, but anything Ant, that's on your mind for future discussion? No. Uh, I'll come back to you guys. <laughs> well, something like assisted suicide that we talked about today is obviously yeah. future potential. And yeah. That's all for now. Thanks, Thanks so much, guys. Now. Cool. Cheers, guys. Take care. See you next time. Bye.